There oh, we go. There we go. Okay. <laughs> What's the question? When you talk about Rome and the last kingdom, you say us. Are you or this church associated with Roman Catholicism? I love this question. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hear your answer. Well, okay, so I, I only say us in the broadest sense of the term. You know, Anybody who claims to be a follower of Jesus, I would consider part of my, my spiritual family. I'm not going to judge their hearts. Um, now, uh, there, there are some actions that we can judge, but I'm not going to judge their hearts and say, no, you're not part of my family. Um, so in, in the broadest sense, um, anybody who claims to be a Christian, I would claim to be part of my, my family, my brother or sister in Christ. And um, keep in mind, when Jesus was walking on earth, when he was interacting with the children of Israel, he told his disciples that he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So clearly these are God's people, and there's people who, well, who need to be reached. This is the nation who, um, they, they opposed the Messiah so strongly that they put him on the cross. And, and with violence, they cried out, His blood be on us and on our children. This is, this is the people of God. Mm-hmm. And yet they had abandoned God so much so that they were willing to destroy God. And yet he still claimed them as his own. So there, there's <laughs> a little love. dichotomy here, right? right? So, and then when I, when I think about it, I, I am related based on what Paul says in the Bible, I'm related to the same family, the same spiritual family as Paul and Peter and John and James. And, uh, and, and Paul says that it's from among us that the man of sin, the lawless one, would come uh, from among us. And, and true to form, when we see it in history, we see that the rebellion of, uh, is happening from the Christian church. It's the, the apostles spread this church, this message, the gospel message all around. Churches start popping up all around the world. And as time rolls on, you get this group of people who um, have allowed paganism to come into their, into their, their thinking. They've um, made pride and greed a more important thing than, than truth. They've abandoned Scripture. And, uh, and so, if, if Paul says that this is going to come from our family, from his family, then, and, and I'm part of his family, then it's from my family too. And so I can say in the broadest sense, us. Um, now, th- this is an interesting thing because they've, uh, the, 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 the church in the Middle Ages as a whole, and keep in mind that the church, it was the worldwide church, and that, that word Catholic simply means universal or worldwide. And, uh, and so what they're, what they're saying is that, that we're, you know, the church, the, the, the group of people that follow Jesus, right? And the church, the group of people that follow Jesus had abandoned the Bible. Um, and, and then you get to this, this scenario where Jesus says to the Israelites, the people who say that they're following God, he says, other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I will bring, I will call. They will hear my voice mm-hmm. and there will be one flock and one shepherd. That's mm-hmm. Jesus that's Jesus' promise, and that promise tracks all the way to the book of Revelation, where in Revelation chapter 18, 4, we find God talking to Babylon, and He says, come out of her, my people. This is God's call, and, and He says, I have sheep. And so, I would say, I would say that uh, I don't have any connection to Roman Catholicism, and yet, 
anybody who is sincerely pursuing truth and wanting to follow Jesus, I would consider part of my spiritual family. And, and whatever stripe they, are, uh, they have, whatever religious denomination might be over, over their um, church doors or whatever, I would consider them part of my family. And one day, uh, there will be only one flock and only one shepherd because Jesus will call us home and we'll be in heaven and we'll get to be in that new Jerusalem with him. Nice. So, um, yeah, I say us in that broadest sense of the term. And no, I'm not affiliated. <laughs> okay. Let me get her name for our giveaway. Oh. <clears throat> Poor Wayne is limping. <laughs> His chicken tripped him up today. <laughs> Sorry, Wayne, I gave you away. <laughs> All right, who, we, um, let me tell you first, before you do that. So this is called The Days of Noah. It's a four-part documentary series. Really well done. Some amazing B-roll. And uh, lots and lots of different con- contributors really exploring the, well, Jesus says in Matthew 24, as in the days of Noah, so also in the coming of the Son of Man. And so it's exploring that idea, the days of Noah. What's it going to be like? What was it like then? What's, what's it going to be like in Jesus' second coming? So um, a lot of this stuff we've been talking about, they, they cover in a documentary format. It's really good stuff. Who do we get to give this to? I messed the name up the first time. Let's see if I can get it right and redeem myself. Tanya. Ooh, Tanya. Fun. Have you watched that yet? Cool. You'll love it. All right. We have, we have a, uh, while you do that, we have a special music that um, I'm going to invite Sylvia to come forward and share with us a, a really great song, Because He Lives.
Thank you so much. That was beautiful. Is, is this in anybody's way? We can move it over. How about we do this? All right, that way, that way you can see the, the screen. Let's, uh, let's have a prayer again as we, uh, as we begin. Father in heaven, we just want to surrender ourselves as, uh, as we open your word, surrender to your spirit. Um, please put that uh, coal from the altar like Isaiah experienced on my lips and let me glorify you tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Tonight, our subject is God's strange act, a sensitive subject because we're talking about judgment, but a beautiful subject, I think, that you'll find in the end. On, sun, on Sunday night, tomorrow night, a desolate planet, the, the Bible predicts this moment when there's people in heaven, we're going to explore what that looks like, and there's something not right on the earth, um, not much going on, and so we're going to get to look at that. On Tuesday night, how to postpone your funeral. A little bit different look, but solidly in the Bible and in subjects of end time. Um, and, and we're going to look at um, how the Bible talks about health and our bodies, and we'll find that there's, there's um, statistical evidence that when you follow the Bible's suggestions that you live longer and you live better. Wednesday night, we're going to go to Revelation chapter 12. Um, We didn't really finish that chapter, so we get to explore this. And the big question is, we had that 1,260-year period where the the woman was running to the desert, running to the wilderness, and we're going to explore what all that means and figure out, well, what happened next? Where is that woman from Revelation 12 now? And then on Friday night, the mark of the beast This is one that you might have been waiting for. We're going to get to explore this and figure out one of the most talked about subjects in the Bible, and we're going to get the answer from the Bible. And uh, of course, that's Revelation chapter 13 again. We looked at one of the beasts, the one that crawled up out of the ocean, out of the sea, but uh, on Friday night, we get to look at the second beast. And uh, that one's going to be pretty exciting. You don't want to miss that one. So on Saturday morning, we're going to do one more morning session in Discovering Revelation. And uh, in, in Saturday morning, the Revelation 12 describes God's last day people as ones who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And on Saturday morning, we're going to unpack that and figure out what does that mean. And, uh, and we're going to get to focus a little bit in the book of Joel, where Joel, Joel says in the last days that there will be dreams and visions, which is kind of exciting and kind of weird too. And so we're going to get to unpack that. And how do we understand what is coming from God and what is not? So tonight, God's strange act. Now, last night we started searching through the Bible and exploring this idea of death. And we found that uh, in the Bible, death is not described the same way as the, um, the, the Greek philosophy that we've adopted into Christianity describes death. And, and we looked at, at some of these things and, and found that death is a sleep. And, uh, and that really, that's the closest analogy that we can compare it to. And the Bible uses that analogy over 70 times to describe death. And, and then it, it described this, this pause, right? 
Um, Paul talked about it as nakedness. There's a body, and then there's naked, and then there's, and then there's another body again. And that nakedness was that sleep, that time when, when we return to dust, but we're waiting for something. What are we waiting for? The resurrection, right? The return of Jesus and the resurrection. We're waiting for the resurrection. Um, now, the question is, what about the people who aren't waiting for Jesus and the resurrection? What about people who've rejected his offer of grace? What about those? And uh, we, didn't, we didn't really talk about them last night. I, I strategically avoided talking about them last night because I knew we were going to talk about it tonight. So what happens to them? Where do they go? And, and, and what happens after their sleep? And um, there's so many interesting stories about this, so many different theories about what happens when God deals with the wicked. Let me show you what I mean. This one is um, written by a guy named Mr. J. Furness, and that's not intended to be a pun, just so you know. <laughs> he describes, look into this little prison. Now, this, this is a book written for children, please. Just, you got to understand that when you read this. Look into this little prison. In the, middle, it is, uh, in the middle of it, there is a boy, a young man. He is silent. Despair is on him. He stands straight up. His eyes are burning like two burning coals. Two long flames come out of his ears. His breathing is difficult. Sometimes he opens his mouth, and a breath of blazing fire rolls out of it. But listen, there is a sound, just like the sound of a kettle boiling. Is it really a boiling kettle? No. Then what is it? The blood is boiling in his scalded veins of that boy. The brain is boiling and bubbling in his head. The marrow is boiling in his bones. Wow. I mean, I think that he's trying to get the idea across that if you're a bad boy, then you're going to have this fate, so you better be good, right? Kind of like the Santa's watching out for you, right? Kind of scenario. If you're, if you're bad, you get cold. This is kind of like that, but, but it's the coal on fire scenario. Um, now, let me ask you a question. Is this what God does with unrepentant sinners? Is this an accurate description? If not, then why have Christians been, been sharing something similar to this for years? It's what Robert Ingersoll's dad told him. Who's Robert Ingersoll? Do you know this guy? Robert Ingersoll is a notorious atheist, kind of like Richard Dawkins today. This is the, the, the anti-God atheist of his day many years ago. He spent his entire life mocking Christianity, uh, but what some people don't know is that his dad was a famous preacher, and his father used to sit him down and tell him stories like the one we just read, and he'd say, listen, Robert, if you're, if you're not a good boy, God's going to torture you forever and ever in the fires of hell. You're going to twist in pain and scream out loud and suffer without any relief. And the more little Robert Ingersoll thought about that, the more he didn't like it. Imagine that. He says, if that's what God is like, then I hate God and I want nothing to do with Him. And I would suggest that this doctrine... The teaching that the Christian church has had over the past many years, many hundreds of years, has single-handedly created more atheists than any scientific research ever has. How can God be good and do such horrible things? That's a really, really good question. 
How can you reconcile these two ideas, a God of love and a God who gives His life to save us and a God who punishes people in the fires of hell for eternity? Is there some way we can make sense of that? And that's the goal tonight. What does the Bible really say? Is hell going to be the way the books and the movies describe it, or is it something else? And, and, and there's another question we have to kind of just push in there at, at the same time. You see, who's in charge of hell? According to the books and the cartoons, who's, who's in charge of hell? Who's got the, the forklift and is turning people on the spit? The devil is, right? With his pitchfork and his horns and his pointy tail, right? The devil is described in, these, in this way, and it's almost as if, um, you know, God has, has given Satan the job of torturing people on his behalf, right? That's almost like what the books describe. And so is that really true? Is that really the way it works? The world has been told so many stories that it's starting to become difficult, I think, to separate fact from fiction. One day, a little girl told her mother a bald-faced lie, and her mother was shocked and, uh, that her little sweet angel would lie, as any good mother would be, right? Um, and so she sat her down, and she scared her into being honest. She said, honey, if you ever do this again, a big tall man with flaming red eyes and two horns is going to come and take you away, and he'll make you work for a hundred years in a coal mine under the ground just, just for telling one little lie. So now tell me, will you, will you ever lie again? No, ma'am, she said. I wouldn't dare because uh, you tell them so much better than I do. <laughs> Tonight, what is the truth? What does the Bible actually say? That's the question we need to find out. So let me show you a number of things that are for sure, things that are biblical facts. Fact number one, the Bible says that hell is absolutely real. I have not been keeping up with my slideshow. It's a reality. Hell is real. And let me just give you a verse for this. Revelation 20, verse 15, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is a tragic truth. It's not a comfortable truth. It's not one that we should be pleased to talk about, but it is a truth and one we should face. There are some people who won't be in heaven, and it's because they don't want to be there. If you don't want to be there, God's not going to force you. He's not going to write your name in the book of life in spite of you. Why? Well, it's kind of like that man who, uh, he was a gambler, loved to gamble, and he got on the boat to go to this island with a bunch of casinos on it. This is in another country. And he goes to, to, to this island. He's, he's um, on the boat heading to this island, and he's, he's excited. He's got his wad of cash in his pocket, and he's ready to, to, to have some fun in the casinos and drink some and, and play some. And, and, uh, and, and he starts to notice, and maybe he's a little hungover, and so it took a while, but he starts to notice that the people around him don't really look like him. They're all a bit shorter than him, and, and, and they're all running around making a lot of noise. It's a boat filled with children, and, and he asks the captain, what is going on? Like, these kids aren't going to the casino, are they? And the captain laughed, and he says, no, no, I think you might have got on the wrong boat. This boat's going to a vacation Bible school that we're holding on this other island over here, and these kids are going to help out. Oh, my. He says, I've got to get off this boat. Turn it around. And he's like, no, I'm not going to uh, cancel this trip for the kids just for you. Sorry, dude, you're going to have to you're going to have to tough it out. And so that whole day, 
he had to spend with a bunch of VBS kids talking about the Bible and singing songs about Jesus when all he wanted to do was get drunk and spend a bunch of money. Do you think God's going to force people into his kingdom? I mean, if you, if you really want to be doing stuff that's all about hedonism, all about pleasure-seeking and, and caring nothing at all for other people, then heaven's not going to be a fun place for you. Because while heaven is full of pleasure forevermore, the Bible says, it's not the kind of pleasure that we seek when we're pursuing pleasure for pleasure's sake. And, and uh, while there's beautiful relationships there, lust is not going to be something that's on the menu. There's no, going to be no pornography to, to play with on the internet. Pretty sure the heaven doesn't have an internet, doesn't need one. But th- there's, there's just not going to be the stuff that would satisfy the desires of somebody who has rejected God. It's going to be an uncomfortable place for them. And if you don't want to be in heaven, God's not going to force you to be there. But the only alternative to heaven is this lake of fire experience. And now here's where it gets interesting. The Bible teaches that hellfire was never intended for human beings. Not one human being was ever supposed to be in the lake of fire. And how do I know that? Well, it's because Jesus said so in Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. He says, then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Prepared for who? The devil and his angels, not for you and me. It's, the problem is the, the human race, we kind of got ourselves into a pickle because we followed Satan. And if we, if we understood it clearly to begin with, we might not have, but, but Satan is headed for destruction. And when we follow the dragon, where are we ended? Where, where's our destination? Same place as his, destruction, which is important. When Revelation 14 says that the, the people on that mountain, that Mount Zion, they follow the Lamb wherever he goes, Jesus is going to everlasting life. And there's only two sides, Cain and Abel, and ever since then, only ever two sides, those who follow the Lamb and those who follow the dragon. If you follow the Lamb, you get to everlasting life, and if you follow the dragon, you get to destruction. That's the scenario that we're in. Point number three, the Bible teaches that hellfire is not yet burning. Uh, but I thought, uh, you know, it was already down there somewhere, you know, under our feet somewhere. Isn't that what we, we talk about? Down there? I mean, the National Enquirer proved it uh, many years ago. They said that uh, a Russian oil rig drilled too far down into the ground and they suddenly broke into hell and they could hear the screams of people burning. But that was the National Enquirer, not the Bible. It, it, it brings uh, some, some doubt into this, the picture when you find it's the National Enquirer. Jesus told a parable about the end of the world, and we need to read the whole thing to, to understand what, what the end of the world is going to be like in this scenario. Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30. If you've got your Bible, open it up. We're going to be here for just a few minutes. Verses 24 to 30. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But, ah, there's the problem. Every time you get a but, there's a problem. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, 
the tares also appeared. Now, you know what a tear is, right? We're not talking about like tearing paper or something like that. We're talking about weeds. And, and so there's, there's good seed. That's the seed that was intended to bring the crop that the, the farmer designed. And then there's something that's going to get in the way of that, some weeds that are going to mess things up. Well, so the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you know, or did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. And there's another really important point. Does God create the tares? Mm, no, God didn't. <laughs> did, did, did God create weeds in your garden? Maybe, but no, God, God did not design this scenario. An enemy has done it, the Bible says. The, 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 the dragon, the devil has done this. So the servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? Do you want us to pull the weeds? You know, this is God's garden, and he sowed good seed, but there's weeds growing in it. And, and they say, do you want us to pull the weeds? But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. Until when? Until the harvest. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares, bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So that's the whole story. But what does it mean? We could, uh, we could have all kinds of descriptions of what this means, but I think the wisest thing for us to do is to read the whole story. We've been doing that all month long now. Matthew 13, 37, Jesus answers the question of what it means. He answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. Just to be clear, the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. And so it's, it's in this scenario, the second coming of Christ scenario, that the angels are sent to gather the tares, the wicked ones, the children of Satan, together to be burned which means that they're not yet gathered and not yet burning because Jesus has not yet come. Um, but they, they do something else. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the furnace of fire happens after the second coming. The, the, the events of this furnace thing are not yet happening now. It's real and it's unfortunate, but it's not yet happening. And I think that's important for us to recognize so we know that it's a reality. We know that it's not intended for us. We know that it's not yet burning. Um, another point is that it burns until, or it burns at the end of this age, after the second coming. Those are, are things that we've just discussed. Next question, though, needs to be, where does hell burn? Is it down under somewhere? Um, is it out in the universe somewhere? Um, I was... Uh, studying the Bible with a missionary Baptist friend of mine named Jim. Jim is a great guy. Uh, love, love him. He just loves Jesus, and he's studying his Bible all the time, and we're, we're having this discussion. 
And, uh, and he was describing to me how hell is at the center of the earth, and it used to be that paradise was right there too. And, uh, and, and that uh, those burning in hell and those living in paradise at the center of the earth would, were just right next door to each other um, until Jesus came and at his death and then resurrection, Jesus took the paradise to heaven with him. And I, I, asked, I asked him, where did you get that story? I haven't found that in the Bible yet. And, uh, and well, it's not there. <clears throat> Question is, where does it burn? Where is this hellfire? Um, well, Revelation 20 helps us to know where it is. Revelation 20, verses 7 to 9. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth. Where? On the breadth of the earth. So this is on the earth. And the camp of the saints, uh, they surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And then what happens? Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The Bible's really pretty clear about this point. Um, hellfire burns on the face of this earth. Uh, so let's add that to what we know so far. Hell is a reality. It wasn't intended for us. It's not yet burning. It burns at the end of the age after the second coming, and it burns on this earth. These are things that the Bible tells us. But let me ask you another question. Why does God use fire? There, there's two answers to this question. One is fire is pretty good at cleaning things up. I mean, if you were to dig a hole and bury something, um, somebody could dig it up, right? And, and some things, they don't deteriorate. They don't deteriorate nearly quickly enough. Um, what is that uh, atomic stuff that'll, the half-life is like 200,000 years or something crazy like this? Things, some things just don't burn up. And, and the, the impact and problem of sin is something that God wants to deal with. And uh, so fire is an essential tool in cleansing this world. It's a permanent solution to a problem that God wants to provide a absolutely permanent solution to. Is it a good idea for this experiment of sin to come back to the universe? It's not a good idea. And so God's dealing with it in a way that it will eradicate it forever. The Bible says that, God's, that this is God's plan to accomplish that. He says, Revelation 21.4, that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. God is going to put a permanent end to misery. I mean, it breaks his heart to see us suffering now. Can you imagine his children burning forever? There's, if, if they were burning forever, there would be no end of tears. And that, of course, leads to this next question, how long will hellfire burn? And, of course, we were often told as kids that it would burn forever and ever and ever without end. But if that's true, wouldn't suffering continue? How could suffering be ended, like Revelation 21 describes, if hellfire continues? And so listen very carefully to Revelation 20, verse 9. And fire came down from God out of heaven, and what's the word? It devoured them. What does the word devour mean? I'll just give you an example. Um, I am a particular fan of banana cream pie. I love that stuff. It's light. 
when it's made right. You know, it's light and kind of airy. It has that just perfect banana flavor. It's super sweet, but not too sweet. Um, it, it's got those little, what are they called? The w- vanilla wafers? Just softened perfectly. Mm, it's good stuff. And if you were to bring me a banana cream pie tomorrow night, I would illustrate what devour means. <laughs> See, devour means to eat up completely, right? Um, if your kids come and they devour the meal that you made, then um, they, they've just eaten everything on the table, right? We know what devour means. So when it says it here, we should, we should understand the word to mean what it actually means. But that's not what I've heard. Well, I know, but, but listen to the Bible. Malachi 4.1, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wicked will be stubble. What is stubble? I'll tell you what stubble is. I used to live in Walla Walla, and around Walla Walla are thousands and thousands and thousands of acres of wheat. And those wheat fields, they would, they would um, harvest them, and the, the harvester would come through, and they'd, they'd cut the top, you know, few inches off, and uh, they'd thresh it and get the grain and stuff. And then they, they'd have some, um, some people, they happened to be a bunch of Mennonites at the time that I was living there, and they'd come through, and they would cut the, the, the straw that was left over, and they would make bales out of it. And you know what's left after that? Just a couple inches of stubble hardly anything. And you know what they would do with that stubble? They would burn it. Now, not every year, but, but um, kind of going through rotations, they would burn that, clear out any weeds, things like that, and prepare it for the next, uh, the next thing that was ha- going to happen. And, and uh, if you burn wheat grass, um, how long does it last? Not long. Not long at all. It's not like steel. It's not like concrete. It's certainly not like asbestos. It, it burns fairly quickly. And, and then Malachi keeps on going, and it says, And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. Nothing of this stubble is going to be left, God says. It will burn up. And this is what happens. See, when fire... Um, energy through, through this really hot uh, experience, when fire is applied to some substance, the result is that the chemicals break down and, and what's left? Smoke. And that thing is completely gone, dissolved. Does it sound like hellfire goes on forever and ever when you read Malachi? No. So let's keep reading in verse 3. Malachi 4.3, you shall trample the wicked, for they shall be as ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Ashes under your feet. Um, So the fire burns, the wicked are destroyed, the fire burns out. That's what the Bible describes. This one comes from Psalm 21, 9 and 10. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Their offspring you shall destroy from the earth and their descendants from among the sons of men. So the Bible says that the wicked are destroyed from the earth. Um, destruction is, is, is something that's pretty complete. It's when, you, when you say something is destroyed, I mean, if, if you were to have a car accident and uh, somebody says, how's your car? And you said, oh, it's destroyed. <laughs> What's the implication about your car? 
It, it's gone. It, it's, it's not salvageable. It's done. And in, in this is Psalms 37. The wicked shall perish and the enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of lambs. They shall consume into smoke. They shall vanish away. Here's another one from Psalms 145. The Lord preserves all who love Him, but the wicked He will destroy. So let's just stop for a minute and think carefully about this idea. Many of you are parents. Um, Let's just say that your child refuses to clean his or her room. You walk in, it's a mess, Uh, there's toys all all over the floor, you you step on a few and you just about trip and fall and you say to your your child, um, clean your room. When I come back, it better be clean or else. And then you come back a couple hours later and the room is worse than it was when you came before. And so you find all these toys on the floor, and what you do is you, you um, lean him over on your leg and you paddle him, and you spank that kid for one hour for every toy that's on the floor. What do you think? Is that good parenting? That'll teach him. He'll never do that again. Well, <clears throat> if, if you and I think that that that's not good parenting, then why would we consider an incredible, ridiculous amount of torture to be a good thing for God to do? Why do we think that God would be a monster? The Bible says the fire burns out. It comes to an end. There is a punishment, but it ends. And this might be one of the most talked about subjects in the Bible, You'll find this story coming up again and again and again all throughout Scripture. Isaiah 47, 14 says, Behold, they shall be as stubble, the fire shall burn them, they shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. It shall not be, it shall not be a coal to be warmed by, nor a fire to sit before. Do you, do you see what it's saying? It's saying this is going to be the kind of fire that you can't put out. I mean, we couldn't go up there and, and throw buckets of water on it or bring a fire hose to it or a fire ship to it and or whatever, you know, a water ship that throws water, you know, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> we, we couldn't bring any amount of water to this thing and make it stop. But there's going to be a point where there's not even a coal to make a marshmallow by, nothing to warm your hands with. That's what the Bible describes about this judgment experience. It's thorough, so thorough that even the devil is destroyed. Nothing that is wicked will remain. Some people say that uh, the devil's going to keep on living. And you got to wonder, if the guy who started the problems that we face gets to keep living, then why does us humans die, right? It doesn't seem right. You know, we're the ones that are led astray into temptation and, and end up following this demon. Why doesn't he get punished? Well, the Bible says he does. The, the fire was prepared for the devil. The punishment was prepared for the devil. The destruction was prepared for the devil. And, and we get to, to get it simply because of following him, not because God designed it for us. Ezekiel 28, God speaks of Lucifer and says this, Therefore I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you and turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. Do you see this? The devil becomes ashes. And all who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. The, the punishment of the fire, the work of the fire, 
is eternal. Do you see that? No more forever. Never again will the devil be a problem in the universe. Everything goes, including the devil. Satan doesn't work for God. He's not a pitchfork-carrying guy that's turning people over and making sure they're well-toasted on both sides. That is not his job. The devil is the enemy of God, and the fire is prepared for him, and he will be burned up too. I think it's, it's tragic that for so many years we've painted such a picture of God. And on the one hand, we say God is love, and His love requires Him to torture people forever. And we have to, we have to exist with this dissonance as Christians. But the Bible doesn't have any dissonance here. It says God is love. And like any good parent who would pursue somebody who's harming their children, God does not withhold his wrath from the people who are doing harm to his children. That includes the devil. God is going to bring punishment on those who refuse his, his grace. But the church throughout the generations has, has said things that are just horrific and cast God into such a bad light. Think of uh, Jonathan Edwards, that famous preacher who is a very godly man, I don't want to disparage his character, but unfortunately, he's known for, for one sermon that he wrote. And, and it says in that sermon some of these things, the view of the wicked being tormented in hell will be a font of happiness for the saints throughout eternity. He suggests that, that, that the, the destruction, not the destruction, but the, the torment and torture of the wicked will be something that will cause us joy. And then it says it will make paradise even more precious to them when they see their loved ones suffering in that way. The saints won't have any compassion for the wicked in hellfire as they suffer inexplicable pain. It will give them happiness to see them burn there. Why would you say that? Where does he get that from? Is that something that he found in the Bible? Absolutely not. According to the Bible, well, just think about this. Can you picture the angels in heaven gathering in some divine theater with a bunch of the saints and pulling back the curtains to, to clap and, and, and uh, hurrah at, at the, uh, the view of the wicked burning in hell? That, that seems like there's quite a bit of dissonance in my picture of heaven. The display of divine character and glory will be in favor of the redeemed and most entertaining and give the highest pleasure to those who love God, said Samuel Hopkins. Should the eternal torment of, and fires be extinguished, it would in great measure put an end to the happiness and glory of the blessed. I don't know about you, but heaven is not going to be a happy place because of the torture of the wicked in hell. Heaven's going to be a happy place because Jesus is going to be there and because I'm going to get to be with him. That, that beautiful song we heard, sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer. And then it, at the very end of that song, it said that when Jesus comes and I'll be with him in heaven, I will bid goodbye to that sweet hour of prayer because no longer will I be praying in my closet or by my bed or with my friends. I will be talking with Jesus face to face. That's going to be the pleasure of heaven. And as long as Jesus is there, then we will have ple pleasure forevermore. But it's not because of the torment of the wicked. I'm sorry, Samuel Hopkins got that very wrong. In fact, the Bible says that God himself does not delight in the death of the wicked. 
Ezekiel 33, 11, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his ways and live. God's pleasure, God's desire is for salvation. In fact, Jesus says that there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, more joy in heaven than over 99 who didn't even need to repent. God's joy, the angel's joy is in salvation, not in destruction. God doesn't enjoy it, so why would we? The Bible calls this God's strange act, God's unusual act in Isaiah 28, 21. For the Lord will rise up as, a, as at Mount Perizim. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon that he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. This isn't God, something God wants to do. It's not something God regularly does. It is a one-time thing that happens for a very specific reason. And at the last, like after everything has been tried, after every effort has been made, God finally does this unusual thing. Now, you might have questions, like for instance, what about all those passages in the Bible that talk about forever and ever? Doesn't the Bible say that hellfire will, will burn forever and ever, that will be tormented forever and ever? Well, let's, let's look at a few. There are four words that are translated in the Bible, and these are under, needed we need to understand these in order to understand what the Bible is talking about. The four words are Sheol, and it literally means the grave. And uh, it's translated as hell in many translations, but the, the Hebrew word Sheol just means the grave. And so um, you find somebody like Job who is suffering. He's suffering and he kind of, he's not like wanting to commit suicide or anything, but, but he, he's like, God, can't you just lay me to rest? Can't you just send me to Sheol? the grave, because it would be happier there for me. This is, not, this is not Job saying, you know what, I don't like the sores on my, on my flesh. Can you send me to the burning hell so that I can have suffer, more suffering? That's not what he's saying. He's just saying, the grave, lay me to rest. And we learned that, that, that when you die, you rest. And, and Job's asking for rest from his suffering. The second one is a New Testament word, the Greek word Gehenna, um, it's sometimes translated hell, but it, it's literally a garbage dump. Not just any garbage dump, it's a place where they would take the animal scraps from the sacrifices that, you know, weren't, uh, weren't part of the, the sacrifice, or they would take um, uh, executed prisoners, and, and they would burn them, and the fire doesn't really go out there, it just they keep, you know, keep that fire burning, and they, they, you know, scraps of this and scraps of that, and it's, well, it's kind of a nasty place. Anyway, that's a, that's a literal place outside of Jerusalem, and so when the Greek, when they use that Greek word Gehenna, they're talking about a specific place. And then there's the word Hades, which is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Sheol. It literally means the place of death. Or, and of course, there is that Greek god named Hades. He's supposed to be the god of the underworld. But let me just tell you this. Greek philosophy and the Bible, they do not shake hands. The, the, the apostles are not explaining Christian concepts with Greek philosophy. They're not talking about the Greek god Hades. They're just using a Greek word um, that, that is the equivalent of the Hebrew word Sheol for grave. And then in uh, 2 Peter 2, 4, we read the word Tartarus. It's only mentioned one time in the whole Bible, and it appears that it's some kind of... Uh, uh, a place where fallen angels wait for judgment. Um, 
that's a whole other study we could get into on Second Peter. We'll, we'll leave that for now. But it's, he's not, in this word, pointing to a hell that burns forever. But let's, let's look at some of these verses, like, for instance, Mark 9, 43 and 44. And Jesus is saying to, to people, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That's, that's a kind of extreme. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell. Into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So that word hell comes from the Greek word Gehenna. It's the garbage dump, right? So he's basically saying, um, don't allow yourself to continue sinning. Whatever costs, stop it. <laughs> it's better for you to lose something now and, and enter into eternal life than to go to that dump out there. Okay, so he says that, the, that, that hellfire will never be quenched, right? That means that the fire will never, ever go out, right? Well, okay. Um, eventually, the trash gets burned up, and eventually that fire does burn out, but it's, it's the kind of fire that you can't throw water on and, and, and stop it. To quench something is to put it out. In the Bible, the unquenchable fire simply means it's fire that's too big and too hot for us to put out. Have you ever been burning stuff in the backyard and you've got your hose out there and, and you throw too much on the top of the pile and, and you, start, you really want to, to get the flames to die down and so you put your hose full blast on this thing and it just seems to be evaporating the water as soon as it hits the fire. Have you ever done that? Maybe it's only me. Oh, okay, not me. <laughs> Good. <laughs> it was a problem because uh, when I was burning this fire, it wasn't that far away from the trees and I was concerned, but thankfully it it started to die down, not because I put water on it, but because the stuff it was burning um, started to burn up, and there was less and less to burn. That's unquenchable fire. That's the fire that can't be quenched. You can bring all the fire trucks you want, but it's not going to be put out until the job is done. Let me show you. Book of Jeremiah, chapter 17, verse 27. I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. Now, let me ask you, is Jerusalem still burning today? No, this was, this was a prediction that Babylon would come and would, would conquer Jerusalem, and they would, they would burn the place up, and they did. And, and it wasn't something that they could stop. It wasn't something they could prevent. It was not a fire they could quench. But that fire is not continuing to burn today. The city burned, the fire went out. So let's take a look at Matthew twenty-five forty-one. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. The fire is everlasting, so that means it never goes out, right? Not exactly. Uh, let's take, uh, take a look at this statement and put it in the context of the whole Bible. Now listen very carefully to what Jude says about Sodom and Gomorrah. Jude 1.7, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Is Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them still burning today? Are these cities still on fire in the Middle East? No, in fact, some of them are under the Dead Sea, not burning anymore. Okay, so if, if it's eternal fire is not about its duration, then what is it about? It's about its results. See, the fire 
they did the work on Sodom and Gomorrah, and that work has remained. They have not been rebuilt. They are permanently destroyed. Nobody's going to bring them back. Here's a tricky passage from Revelation 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Whew. That is, that is not a perfect, I mean, not a good uh, scenario. And, and you might say, there it is. They're, they're going to be tortured, and it goes on forever and ever throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. Well, not really. The Bible doesn't use forever that way. The word that's used there in Revelation is the word aeon. And, and what does that sound like in English? Somebody said age. The eon, yeah, that's the English word that would be connected to that Greek word. And, and, and what does it mean? It means for a period of time, a long period of time typically, but, but let me give you an example. My wife took me to a, uh, a Russian opera in the Disney uh, concert hall in Los Angeles one time. It was a requirement for a class she was taking. We lived down there at the time, and she, had, she was uh, taking a, a class, and they had, she had to have the class, and the class required some weird opera. So we went, and we saw this Russian opera. And let me just tell you, that opera went on forever. It was interminable. It never ended. And you know what I mean. It was, it was really boring. <laughs> <laughs> and it seemed like it lasted way longer than it should have. Well, you and I use this word commonly in the English language to describe something that takes some time, and usually it's in, with a bit of sarcasm. We know it's not forever. And in Greek and, and uh, in Hebrew, this word is used in a similar way. It's used to describe as long as it took. It went forever, that, that concert did. As long as it took, whatever time that was, it was forever in my mind. And the same is true in the case of this punishment. It goes on until it's completed. I'll give you an example from 1 Samuel 1. Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, not until the child is weaned, then I will take him to, to Jerusalem, to the, I mean, rather, to, um, to the temple. Or I'm getting my, my time frames mixed up. To the tabernacle. <laughs> So she hasn't, she's not going to go up until the child is weaned. Then I will take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there. How long? Forever. So she obviously means that, that Samuel is going to be there and never, ever die, right? No, that's not what she means. The very next verse, she says, Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He shall be lent to the Lord. So this word forever, this, this period of time, is intended to be a replacement for as long as he lives or as long as it lasts or, right, whatever the time frame is. Um, so until it ends is what the Bible means by the word forever. I'll show you another example. This is from Jonah, who probably felt like it was going to be forever, uh, but he said it like this, I went down to the moorings of the mountains, the earth with its bars closed behind me forever. How long was he in the belly of that fish? Come on, Jonah, three days. I mean, you can survive anything for three days, right? It's not forever, but he probably felt like it was. And this is perhaps one of the best-known and best-loved verses in the Bible. And the Bible gives us a really clear understanding of what happens to the wicked. And here it is, John 3.16. 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. What are the two options? It's Cain and Abel, right? The, the two sides, there's only two, those who follow the Lamb and those who follow the dragon. Where's the dragon going? To destruction. And so those who follow the dragon will perish, but those who follow the Lamb will receive everlasting life. This is the story of the Bible, and it's very consistent from beginning to the very end. It says the same thing. Now, I, I've been talking about this, this um, fire that doesn't end and, and describing how the Bible actually uses forever to, to mean until it's finished. And I just want to point out that the work of this fire will completely end. But the Bible also uses forever in a longer duration of time. Because how long does God live? Forever, right? There is a time period in the Bible that never has, that doesn't have a beginning and doesn't have an ending. And, it's, and it only really applies to God himself. And there is a place in the Bible that you might not have recognized before, even if you've heard this subject. And, and it tells us what hellfire is made of. Where does it come from? In Isaiah chapter 33, verses 14 to 16, it says, The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? I like to ask the question about this time. Where would you like to be in the, the, the afterlife? In the smoking or the non-smoking section? What would you say? Just, just shout it out. Smoking or non-smoking? You guys are, are, are good, logical people. I'm going to just trash that idea right now. He who walks, up right, uh, who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, he who despises the gain of oppression, who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes, who stops his ears from holding of, uh, hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil, he will dwell on high. Do you see the parallelism here? Who's going to dwell with everlasting fire? Who's going to walk on high? They're the same thing. It's the righteous who get to burn forever. And you know what the devil would like us to think? He'd like us to think that hell is a torture forever because that fire from God is a torturous thing. But it's not. God is the devouring fire. Paul backs this up in the New Testament in Hebrews 12, 24, when he says, for our God is a consuming fire. Why would he say that? As though it's a good thing. I'll tell you why. Think, think about this. Is God a maniacal pyromaniac going around starting fires? Is that what the Bible is saying about God? Not at all. He's not a cruel dictator. He's not an insane psychopath. These are things that Satan wants us to believe about God, but they're not true. They're true about Satan. Satan is the controlling psychopath. God is infinitely loving and yet infinitely powerful. If uh, the world were for some reason to just stop twisting on its axis and you and I were stuck facing the sun, and let's just say that we had no means for protection, it wouldn't be very long until you and I were dead. Do you know why? It's because the sun that provides us life that gives us warmth and light is a powerful thing. And God is the one who made the sun. 
God is the one who designed light. God is the source of all life. And if you and I are to get into God's presence, He's going to be brighter than the sun. He's going to burn hotter than any star in the universe. God is a consuming fire, not because He's evil or uh, he's, He's some pyromaniac, but because He is powerful. He is the source of all of light. And I think this is what's going on with hellfire. You see, when, when God on the mountain met with Moses, Moses came down from that mountain with a face glowing so brightly, with just the, a, a little bit of reflection of God's glory, that the people couldn't look at him. They said, put, put a veil on your face, please. We can't have you in our presence because you're too bright. If that's the case, then what was, what was God's brightness like? In Eden, the angels held swords of fire. On Mount Sinai, God appeared covered in a cloud, and and even that cloud couldn't help but break out little bits of His glory, and and the Bible describes it as lightning coming out of that, that, uh, that, that cloud. In Daniel and in Revelation, Jesus is described as having eyes of fire and his legs are burning. And, uh, and it says all the way throughout the Bible, whenever you see the throne of God, whether it's Isaiah or Ezekiel or Daniel or Revelation, the prophets describe fire and lightning and inexpressible light in the presence of God. God's glory is amazing. And then there's this verse from Revelation 14 that kind of pulls the picture together. And it says this in verse 10, He shall be tormented. This is the, 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 um, the beast uh, from Revelation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone. Where? In the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And I think, to me, this makes the picture clear. See, God has a big problem on His hands. How do you, how do you save the human race without violating their freedom to choose? How do you destroy sin forever without losing people unnecessarily? And how do you express your love for those who refuse you? This is a problem that he's trying to deal with, and he does his best. He pursues people, and he pursues people, and he pursues people until they make a final choice, until they say, enough is enough, get out of my life, God, or they embrace him with love and say, please come, Lord Jesus. And so, it's as if at this very end, when every recourse has been taken and, and, and every decision has been decided and judgment has been passed, that, that God reaches out in loving embrace of the whole world. But these people who have rejected Him, boldly defying Him, have rejected the protection of Jesus' righteousness, the robe of that wedding ceremony that Jesus described in Matthew 25, and they've rejected that And so God's loving, powerful embrace consumes them. Fire emanates from God himself. I mean, he did the same thing for the people at the second coming. This is what the Bible points to. Because there's there's this group of people who see Jesus coming in the clouds and they run from him. But there's this group of people who see Jesus coming in the clouds and they raise their arms to heaven and they say, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. And then they are changed in the twinkling of an eye. They, they get these glorious bodies that can live in the presence of a, of a divine, powerful, holy God and they get to go to heaven and they get to burn forever. Satan would like us to think 
that the wicked burn forever and that it's God's fault. But the truth is, the righteous get to burn forever and absolutely, it's God's doing. Absolutely. And it's going to be a good thing. It's going to be a glorious thing. And in Revelation 21, when God has embraced everybody and those who love him have embraced him back and those who have rejected him are consumed, God says, I will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. This is all about God's throne. The devil wants God's throne. He wants us to believe a lie about God, and it's not true. There's no reason that we should continue it. God is holy and just and good. He's not a controlling, narcissistic maniac. He is loving and kind, and and He wants you. He wants to embrace you. And the only question is, will you let Him? There's a story of... uh, there's a story of an uh, emergency room doctor who talks about these parents who bring their kids, babies, little tiny children, to the emergency room, and, and there's nothing they can do. But those parents want them to do everything possible. And so they're, they're trying to resuscitate a baby that's, that's dead, and they keep pumping on their chest and keep trying long after the, the medical professionals know it's, it's too late. But then there's a point where the parents finally say, they, they, they realize that it's, it's, it's over, there's nothing more that can be done, and they say, please stop. And I think that's what's happening in this, this story of hell. God is pursuing us. He's pursuing every one of us, and He's pumping on our chest, so to speak, trying to resuscitate us and bring us back to life long after we've rejected Him for good. And it's only after that every decision is decided, after every um, last resort has been taken, that God finally brings judgment. Maybe, maybe you have uh, been going through some tough times, and you've been tempted to look at God and say, why, God? Why have you been bringing this on me? And uh, kind of looking at this whole experience as though God is bringing trouble. I'd like to encourage you to think about it the other way around. <laughs> Satan does like to pursue us and mess our lives up. Sin and us other people and our own stupid mistakes. We do enough of that of our, ourselves. We bring lots of trouble on ourselves, don't we? But God is not trying to bring trouble on us. He's trying to bring goodness on us. And the question is, will you turn around and embrace Him? Or will you say, no, thank you. I've got this on my own. If you'd like to choose to trust God, if you'd like to say, Jesus, I want you to come soon, If you want to say, please, God, give me that hug, would you stand with me as we pray? Father, tonight we choose to trust you. We choose to believe that you say what you say in your word, that you love us, 
that you are long-suffering, that your deepest desire is that none of us would be lost. We can see it. Even in the worst circumstances, in the, in the worst crises, you always do the most loving thing. Please help us to believe. Teach us to trust you, even in the moments when life seems unbearable and we're tempted to think that, you're, that you've abandoned us. And most of all tonight, we accept the gift of Christ at Calvary. We believe that you forgive and we long to see Jesus come again. We want to say, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. We want to embrace you when you come down to give us that divine hug. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.